Well, good morning. Awesome. Uh, it is such a pleasure to be here today. Um, I lead worship most Sundays at Rock Creek, uh, so it's an especial pleasure to me just to be able to sing uh, and be led. So would you give it up to the worship team because they're doing a fantastic job. So I, um, I am a worship leader. Uh, I was a history major here at Covenant. Um, is the motto of the history department still, we care? Yeah, good, cool. Uh, they still wear sweater vests over there? Maybe, depending on the climate, okay. Um, so I, I'm a history major. There'll be a lot of quotes that are over three centuries old in this talk here. Um, but I wanna start with one of those. There's a, a prayer that I have learned to love in recent years by uh, Hillary of, I wasn't a French major, so I'm going to say Poitiers, but you could say what it's actually pronounced, but I'll pray that now. Grant us, therefore, precision of language, soundness of argument, grace of style, loyalty to truth. Amen. To prepare for today, I went and listened through a number of chapel talks over the past few months. Uh, and I need to say something that I probably could have stood to hear more when I was a student. These people love you. Uh, Chaplain Lowe, uh, Stephanie, <clears throat> the faculty, um, Dr. Finch, um, the folks that put the chapel together, they really do love you. Uh, it came through loud and clear as I saw the speakers and the topics that they pull in for the different chapel series. I suspect it's been that way all along, but as a student, I was often too distracted by lunch around the corner or kilter, or any number of other things, to let myself think about that too much. Uh, but they love you so much, and they want to see you thrive in a world where many forces want to take you down. In the words of Wendell Berry, that my pastor, Eric Youngblood, um, quotes uh, almost weekly, um, they are opposed to your ruin. So I want to try and channel that today, and be faithful to the spirit of the chapel program, but with a topic that I think is critical Christian life in a modern, digital, and often dehumanizing world. I would like to talk about worship. How important is worship? Worship is everything. All right, what do I mean by that? I'm a worship leader, so that's kind of like how in the Middle Ages, scholars said that theology was the queen of all sciences, and which scholars said that? It was the theologians. Uh, so yeah, I'm not exactly unbiased here, uh, but that, that's not what I mean. Uh, I, I say it that way because in youth group talks growing up and the songs we sang and the books that they give you at high school graduation, uh, and just broadly in the evangelical world, there's this idea that I heard so often and it felt so broad that it became meaningless, this idea that your whole life is worship. We've probably all had someone teach us about how worship doesn't end on Sunday, and they're right, but I heard it so often that I started to roll my eyes. So I say it here in part for my own sake, to answer the apathy and the objections that I used to have. I also read that and I heard it years ago over the course of an incredibly formative internship at North Shore Fellowship here in Chattanooga. Uh, but even then I kind of glazed over when I heard it. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing is worship. We need to think about what it means to live a life of worship, but can we just skip to the part where we get to work on the music? <clears throat> I'm sure you've never felt that. Uh, so, I, yeah, I graduated in 2009, and it wasn't until six or seven years after that that something clicked for me with the help of a friend. 
Um, I had had a number of friends that had gone through deconstruction and they were on the edge of faith and belief uh, or completely out of it entirely. Um, and I was working through that. I was talking with a friend of mine, um, Evan Donovan, another Covenant alum who I've always looked up to. Um, and I was talking to him about finding a, a fresh way to think and talk about what sin does to us and what Jesus' death and resurrection do for us, not just on this, you know, moral level, we've all talked about that, but on the existential level, at the level of our very being. He responded, sounds like you need to go read On the Incarnation by Athanasius. And I did a double take and I said, wait a second, I did read that. I read it for CapEx Christology class, um, but it had been a number of years and I needed a refresher. Uh, and so I picked it up, short little book, highly recommend it, introduction by C.S. Lewis. Um, and sure enough, it was all there. A fresh new way of thinking about our redemption straight out of 318 A.D. For Athanasius, sin was corrosive at the level of our very existence. It's like cutting off your own oxygen supply. But redemption comes from Christ, who makes us incorruptible, refreshing us in his image and turning our created being back toward the creator. I'm reading this, I said, hey, that sounds a lot like worship. So I'll say it again. Worship is everything. Everything because it encompasses our whole life in its totality and everything because of its centrality. It sits at the center. But just repeating that in a song chorus doesn't make it easier to understand or help it take root. So to help with that, I wanted to look at five ways of thinking about worship that have helped me to see how it expands across the whole of life and how it sits at the center. Worship is work. Worship is rest. Worship is death. Worship is life. And worship is delight. So number one, worship is work. It's our work. It's the work that we're called to do. Uh, when Paul and Peter, the writer of Hebrews, New Testament writers, when they use the word that gets translated as worship, it's also the word that gets used to describe priest's service at the temple. Now, I'm not invoking the Greek here like it unlocks some kind of secret meaning. Sometimes you hear folks talk about how the original Greek word for rock means something like really strong and hard. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's what a rock is. Um, you could say the same thing here. Got it. means temple worship. Sounds a lot like what we mean by worship. That's, that's nothing new. Uh, and you're right. But I think it's important to call out that the writers of the New Testament were pitching a paradigm shift to the young church. For hundreds of years, temple service was a thing that the priests did. Um, and again, they're writing in Greek, so when they use that word, it means obviously the priests in Jerusalem at the temple, but also pagan priests. They render service at the temple, service to the gods. <clears throat> the work of tending to the temple, conducting sacrifices, praying for the people. Now, the, the rendering of the service to God, temple worship was something done um, now for the young church um, by the people of God in the church. Not just, when, and not just when they're assembled together. Your spiritual act of worship or service is to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, is what Paul says. So working backward to Genesis, this is also what Adam and Eve were called to do as well. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Bible Project. How many of y'all have ever watched any Bible Project videos? Huge fan. If you haven't watched their videos, I strongly encourage you to check them out. 
one, they're, they're very helpful in, in, in Bible study, but also just they're beautiful. They just have an amazing aesthetic. Um, but they've got a number that explore Genesis with beautiful imagery, getting to how Adam and Eve are the priest monarchs rendering service in Eden, which is a garden temple on a mountain joining heaven and earth. So it's, it's part of our creational identity, but it's also central to our redeemed identity. Um, Hebrews 13, great, great quote, but we, we don't know who. Um, mysterious writer says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So it's central to our redeemed identity. It's the work we've been called to do. It's central to who we were created to be. All right, so that's the first piece. But I remember talking about this with a friend who had gone through... Um, their, their deconstruction. And I remember them saying, sheesh, that, that sounds exhausting. And that's why we can't lose sight of the second facet here, which is that worship is rest. Did you ever have a Sunday where nothing went according to plan? I think that's actually most Sundays. Um, but there's one that always sticks out to me in, in my memory. It was the Sunday after a devastating wave of tornadoes um, tore through this area here, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, um, and uh, I actually stayed on campus that night because Founders is like a bunker. I was like, I'll be good in there. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Um, as a worship leader, each week I work with the, the team at Rock Creek to put together our service so that the songs work together with the sermon, the text, the confession. I put the band together, make sure we got all the chord sheets and everything. Uh, well, when something like that storm happens, you just throw out all the plans. Uh, there was no power at the church, uh, so we're all there after days of people all over the mountain coming together with chainsaws and trucks to unblock roads and help each other. It was awesome. Um, there's no sound system. There's just voices and an acoustic guitar. I think we were using PowerPoint at the time. Uh, that was out of the question, so we just had to pass out songbooks and pick ones that everyone knew. It's one of the most restful things I can think of as a worship leader now, to let go and simply depend on the voices of your brothers and sisters to fill the space, to sing songs you know as a community. For ancient Israel, being able to rest in the worship of God was central to their identity. Throughout the story of Israel, their worship of their God is bound up with resting in him, trusting that he will provide. There's so many stories about this, whether it's the widow who gives the last of her oil and her flour to make bread for Elijah, or the Israelites who have to trust God, uh, that he'll keep giving them the manna that they need each day. And it's a key concept behind the Sabbath. How can you give up a whole day in worship to God? It seems unfathomable, unfathomable, especially today, but God wants it for us and from us. So worship is rest. I have to admit, it's hard for me to trust that there will be enough. I don't want to have to depend on God. Which brings us to the next point. Worship is the death of that desire. Channeling Danny Rojas here, 
Worship is also death. Um, But it's the death of the isolated, independent self, the pure ego that seeks to be the cause of its own existence. So why am I going death first and then life? Uh, Because for Christians, death is something that we go through to get to life. Um, Personal story, uh, for our kids, we've got a seven, almost eight-year-old, Finn. Polly is uh, six, and then Pip is one. Um, And we had not gone to a funeral yet um, for the first couple of years. And so for our kids, dying was something that Jesus did. Um, And so we had to kind of explain to them when we went to a funeral for a loved one, no, it's it's sad. This is a sad time because they don't just get resurrected right afterwards. Um, And I just thought that was profound, that their first concept of of what death was was something that Jesus does, and then after that comes resurrection. I thought there was maybe a lesson there. But the point is, is that for us, it doesn't give finality. It gives a contour to our worship. It gives dynamics. It shapes our worship. The metaphor of dying to self and actual death are more closely connected than I often like to admit. Dying daily to self is a constant confrontation with mortality. A life of worship is a life of an open hand, all while the certainty of death seems to encourage a closed fist to get what you can while you can. But a life of worship is a life of obedience to Paul's command that we present ourselves as living sacrifices. We know what happens to the sacrifice. But if our life is directed toward God as worship, we don't have to worry about whether there will be enough time, food, fulfillment, because we have riches in Christ who leads us through death into life. So during that internship that I had at North Shore, I got to work with a man named Wade Williams. He was maybe the best musician I ever knew. He's a good friend, a mentor. He passed away in 2014. Uh, and left an immense legacy here on Lookout Mountain and in Chattanooga in my life and the lives of many others. Uh, there's a scholarship here at Covenant name for him. Um, he certainly had the talent to do something else besides be a worship leader. There were times talking with him, I, I felt maybe like there was a little bit of melancholy sometimes at giving up the prospects of a different kind of musical career. But man, he was so devoted to serving the church, to disciple people like me. When I think of Wade, there's one memory that stands out above all the others. We were getting lunch at River Street Deli on the North Shore, catching up on a number of items. Uh, One of them was about a difficult situation uh, with another musician that I, I worked with, and they were becoming more unstable, more of a challenge to work with. And I was wondering if it was just time to call it quits cut them loose. And if I'm honest with myself, I was asking this mainly because it was an inconvenience. It wasn't really coming from a place of care and love for that person. Wade's response will always live with me. He said, Matt, you're good, but you're not that good. Kind of blinked (laughs) for a second, (laughs) hoping he would elaborate. And he did. He said, there are more important things than your dang music. He didn't say dang. 
He was reminding me that I would never be so talented that I could forget about people made in the image of God. And that as devoted as someone might be to their craft, it would never be more important than that. Something has to die in order to live that way. Otherwise, you'll always get to the place where you justify a lack of love for the sake of excellence. And Wade lived that out, daily dying in his love for people, for the church, and for God. I think he was able to do that because he held on tightly to the promises of God that on the other side of death was life for those in Christ. So that brings us to point four. Worship is life. Life to come, but also life for us now. So let's talk about it. Returning to Athanasius, he describes the corruption of sin and death as a kind of existential decay in those created in God's image. And then he uses this great imagery of a newly repainted fresco to describe what happens to us when we're refreshed in the image of Christ. Worship is a matter of life and death. It's about our very existence. I saw a tweet, presumably from a millennial like me, that went something like this. Why do humans need jobs? Why can't I just exist and make art and chill with my cat? I'm going <laughs> to... <clears throat> Thank you, catacombs. All right. Um, <laughs> I'm going to ignore the question of stereotypes for a second um, and focus instead on this idea of just existing. Uh, Thomas Merton, a mid-century monk, activist, writer, had a good answer to that. He prayed, let us not only exist, but obey in our existing. Um, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer expounds on this in his book, Creation and Fall, where he talks about, and I'm going to use German words now, so that's how you know I'm smart. Um, probably my wife can tell me how I mispronounce them later. Um, but he talks about Dasein, mere existence, as opposed to Zosein, or existence in a particular way or direction. So existence is not neutral. His point is there's no such thing as mere existence. Our existence itself is directional, pointing to or away from God. He writes, The divine praise that God prepares out of the rude darkness of the unformed is to be completed through its giving forth. The creation still rests entirely in God's hand, in God's power. It has no being of its own. Yet the praise of the creator is completed only when the creature receives its own being from God and praises God's being by its own being. So we're getting back to the idea in Athanasius that what we're talking about is not simply a moral act where worship is just the right thing that we're supposed to do. It's tied to our very existence. And of course, it's not just Athanasius and Bonhoeffer and Merton who see it this way. It's there in Scripture. Paul writes to the Ephesians, pointing to Christ's worship as the model for ours. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then further down are these enchanting words. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Worship is life itself. It's your very being turned back toward God. And because of that, it's also life in the sense that it is sustenance. It's life-giving. 
Which brings us to the last point here. Worship is delight. Delight in God. And I'm ending with this as the last point because it's where I am right now. It's what I'm working on in my own life. I've solved all those other ones. Now I'm working on this one. No, it's not really. I've realized that my functional metaphors for faith and life, when I talk about it, when I think about it, they're often, they're too often deeply serious. I'm fighting, or I'm defending, I'm working, or I'm struggling. I'm sure you get it. Many days I feel embattled as a Christian, as a husband, a father, a brother, a son, a friend. Those are, those metaphors, they're fine and good. I really, they're, they're good metaphors. But as a result, I too often forget that I can delight in God. I can ask for the joy of the Lord. I'm allowed to do that. You're allowed to do that. In fact, I'm called to do that. And it's what God desires for me. So true confessions, I'm terrible at Bible reading plans uh, and New Year's resolutions. There's nothing like trying to book it through Isaiah on December 31st to make you come face to face with your flaws and limitations. Uh, so I'll sometimes get midway through the year um, and I'll say, dang it, ugh, I need to make some headway. Uh, so uh, Psalms, I'm going to read through Psalms. And so because of that, I've read through Psalm 1 like a bajillion times. Um, but it's just so good and I can't help but go back to the feeling that the psalmist just exudes. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in due season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. And God creates space and time for delight in him when he gives Israel the laws that guide their worship. In Deuteronomy 14, Israelites are commanded to set aside a tenth of what their households produce, grain, new wine, olive oil, cows and sheep, and then eat it in a feast as worship of God. And not just that, there's a provision made for those that are too far from the place of the presence of God. If you're too far, you're supposed to sell your tithe and then use the proceeds to buy food and wine and hold a feast. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. I wonder how the people of Israel read that when they were in exile and far from Jerusalem. I'm telling you right now, even if you feel like you're in exile, you are allowed to delight in God. Despite the state of the world, despite social media, despite a million other things, you are allowed to, to delight in God. It's what you were created for. So, five facets. Worship is work. It's rest, it's death, it's life, and it's delight in God. I'd written out most of my outline when I went back and read uh, through some notes that I had from 2020. Uh, at the time, I was reading uh, Frederick Buechner in June of that strange year, um, and I'd written down this quote, and it sums up things better than I ever could. He says, phrases like worship service or service of worship are tautologies. They're redundant. To worship God means to serve Him. Basically, there are two ways to do it. One way is to do things for Him that He needs to have done, run errands for Him, carry messages for Him, fight on His side, feed His lambs, and so on. 
The other way is to do things for him that you need to do. Sing songs for him. Create beautiful things for him. Give things up for him. Tell him what's on your mind and in your heart. In general, rejoice in him and make a fool of yourself for him the way that lovers have always made fools of themselves for the one they love. Work, rest, death, life, delight. It's all in there. Thank you, Frederick Buechner. Uh, now, when he says, you know, things that God needs for you to do for him, he's using an expression. God doesn't need your worship. He doesn't demand it because he's insecure. The psalmist writes, if I were hungry, I would not tell you in what's got to be one of the sassiest psalms. So God is God with or without our worship. So why is this important then? It's important because in order for you to truly live, to be filled with life and not death, you need to worship your creator. You need to worship your creator. You need it in your very bones. You need it in a million different ways, in song, in silence, in solitude, in the sacraments, with the church. It's the true humanity that each of us is so desperately searching for right now. And Christ, the ultimate true human, the son of David, the psalmist, the second Adam, leads us in the perfected worship that his and our ancestors were called to and into that true humanity. I'd like to close with a prayer. It's another old prayer. This one comes from Ambrose of Milan, mentor to St. Augustine. Um, let's pray. <clears throat> o Lord, who has mercy upon all, take away from me my sins and mercifully kindle in me the fire of your Holy Spirit. Take away from me the heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh, a heart to love and adore you, a heart to delight in you, to follow and enjoy you for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.